Blog Talk Radio. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Will a strong and united America still be a force for freedom and prosperity around the world? America has created the longest peacetime economic expansion in our history. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Good common sense and sound judgment of the American people and their essential love of justice. Vine for March 20th, 2000, I'm sorry, March 15th, 2020, got my years and my dates wrong, um, welcome to the show as always, Tim Shiflett. Good evening, sir. Welcome back for I don't even know how many times to count, usually as a guest, tonight we have a whole lot Davis. Thanks for having me, David. Yeah, yeah um, well, good to have you, have you on, Wendy, and we're going to talk a lot, a lot about different, different topics, topics. And, and tonight, tonight and I know real bad, that's throwing me off, me off. Um, um, we're, we're just going to start off, Wendy, getting, getting your thoughts on the Democratic primary race so far. Meaning the presidential primary? Yes, ma'am. Okie dokie. So, um, well, there's a, a lot of candidates who worked really hard, spent millions and millions of dollars, and now are no longer candidates, right? Um, so it's interesting to see where, you know, so many of them, their support I'm has gone. on from... the host line, trying this again. David, can you hear me? Tim, can you hear me? Oh, yeah, I hear you well. Y'all can hear me Okay. I can hear you well, Wendy. Go ahead. Okay. Sorry for the confusion there. Um, so uh, we're we're down to uh, three candidates left. Uh, Congresswoman from Hawaii, Tulsi Gabbard, uh, former Vice President Joe Biden, and Senator Bernie Sanders, right? So um, it will be interesting tonight for the debate to see if it is uh, Sanders trying to uh, cut into Vice President Biden to try to hold on and maybe somehow manage to scrape uh, together enough to be competitive enough for folks to fuss about what could happen at the first round of voting um, with maybe neither candidate getting to 1991 without the other delegates from the candidates who've dropped out being involved um, or if he just does a last chance uh, with this debate to uh, try to get his points out there, but doesn't really go daggers out at the vice president. So I think there's a lot to be intrigued by, um, and the whole coronavirus situation has a lot of things uh, up in the air about um, primaries being postponed, and if it lingers on, what it could do about us, whether we actually have a physical convention or not. I have no idea what a backup plan would be, or if it's possible I don't think it's possible to move an event that large, um, but uh, but that's to be figured out down the road. So, not sure if, well, that, if that answers look, some of the questions you wanted us to start with, David and Tim, or I'm happy to take yeah. a question. Well, I mean, yeah. that, that's just the convention's just a part of it, and then that process. Um, Tim, it sounds like you've got something to follow up on. You do that first. Well, Wendy. You, you 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 just alluded to it. First Louisiana and now Georgia 
have postponed their presidential preference primaries. Um, was this the correct decision? Um, I, uh, I, I mean, it's hard to know, right? It's it's like closing the school when you've got a forecast of a particular kind of storm, right? Uh, whatever you mm-hmm. do, somebody's going to be unhappy. I think the that this is a prudent decision. Um, that um, you know, our side, uh, the one thing we're consistent about is wanting as many people as possible to vote, even if they're not quote our people. We want democracy with a little D uh, very strongly, and I think um, people being scared to come someplace where there's a line and a wait and touching equipment that thousands of other people have touched um, would suppress the vote, would uh, lower the turnout, and I don't think that's what any of us want. So um, I think there are a lot of things in our daily lives that are going to be disrupted um, for a month or more, uh, and I think Mm -hmm. we just uh, roll with it. I'm hopeful that here in Georgia that they will continue to uh, send out and process absentee ballots. So maybe we can find out if we have, uh, you know, what, what would that be? Two and a half months of absentee voting. If we can get people, um, you know, more geared up and get more people to turn out that way. Mm-hmm. Well, whoa. I know that some people have complained that, you know, in Georgia that a governor has this, kind of universal authority to do something like that without the action, say, of the state legislature. Uh, Do you think that a chief executive of the state should have that sort of authority, or or should this be an action of the legislature? Um, Well, you know, it's intriguing. Um, And the, you know, the rules may be different in different states, but, you know, Mm -hmm. it was absolutely solely up to the Secretary of State to set the date in the first place. So mm-hmm. I'm actually a little more comfortable with the governor doing it than the Secretary of State because I think more people were intentional about their vote for governor than, and were probably just, you know, picking a D or R for Secretary of State. Um, I, I'll probably have some more on this in, in a minute, but I, I'll, I'll throw it back to David because I'm sure he wants to get in on this. Go ahead, David. Yeah, whoa. And while we're doing this part of our discussion tonight, I want to stay with it. I mean, Brian Kemp, an individual that came into the governor's mansion with probably the biggest question mark hanging over him was how he had handled um, the elections process with, you know, disqualifying voters and things like that. Um, and now he makes this change. Now, this change could just simply be, we don't want people touching computer screens and then touching their face and then some else touching it. And it could be a public safety issue. It could be that he says, oh, well, if I push this back, maybe somehow that helps the process for my side. Uh, because, you know, people have accused him of putting his thumb on the scale. Do you think it would have been prudent for him to consult with, say, Bob Trammell, minority leader of the state house? Uh, Nakima Williams, who's not only a state senator but the um, head of the DPG, should he have consulted with Democrats since this primary didn't involve Republicans? Well, I mean, they they technically did have a primary on their side. Um, I, I see. I, I'm hopeful that he did 
um, called the, you know, lots of state leaders before he made this decision, even though he didn't have to. I don't know that he did or didn't. Um, but I, I dare say we would have been a lot more critical of him if, uh, you know, the turnout was uh, <laughs> dreadful in 10 days, right, or however long it is to, to when the original date was now, right? Um, so I just, I just think there, there are difficult decisions that have to be made. I think you could look at this. Um, it's going to be really intriguing now locally, right, because um, my understanding is if you had already voted in this election, Obviously, you can still go vote for the local offices in May, right? Uh, your ballot just won't have the presidential primary on it. Now, my question will be, people could have in March voted in the Democratic presidential primary, but in May vote in the Republican local primary, right? Um, yeah. And my question now is, will these will they be split or will it be the same in May, right? I don't know that they have figured that out. If it if it can't be split, like if you only can pick one, um, that's going to put a lot fewer people in in our community voting in the presidential preference primary on the Democratic side who probably would have gone to do that because they don't have any com- competition on the Republican side. Mm-hmm. But the sort of the hottest local races here are on the Republican primary ballot. Yeah, and that's a good point, Um, thinking about local elections, and could somehow it be where your vote essentially, I guess, counts twice, or I don't know. It it seems like it uh, creates a lot of issues. Well, let me ask one more kind of question in that vein, and this kind of gets us back into the actual primary race um, with the candidates. You know, if you look at 538 and other projection models, you know, Joe Biden's like a 99% chance or greater to win – the Democratic nomination. Um, do you think, you know, Brian Kemp and for that matter, John Bell Edwards, a Democratic governor in Louisiana, um, said, looks like Joe Biden's got this thing wrapped up. It's not as critical an election as it was if it were Michigan or the week before in Alabama or even before that in South Carolina. Do you think that figured any way to his calculus? No, I think it was, um, you know, frankly, it makes it a less dramatic election. Um, and so, uh, again, I would like to think that that these were more good government decisions, you know, wanting to have higher turnout, wanting to not expose. You know, so many of the poll workers are are retired and some of them long retired, right? So who are people who shouldn't be in big crowded places? And uh, and we all want our polling places to be crowded places, right? So, uh so I, I think these these were good government decisions that were made easier by the primary not not feeling as heavily contested anymore. Yes. Well, let me ask one more oh. question. I'm going to throw it back to Tim for some questions. Um, well, looking at that, you know, we have a primary race that odds are, you know, it looks like Joe Biden's going to win. There's a debate tonight. Uh, Bernie Sanders seems like he's not going to be as contentious as maybe some of his supporters want to be in that debate tonight given what's going on with this virus and campaigning is going to just be dramatically changed you know no big rallies pressing the flesh is the exact opposite of what folks need to be doing would this be a better reason maybe if bernie sanders thinks i've got a one percent chance like these models are saying to go ahead and just stand down uh there are um Probably equal number of people who would say, yep, I think that's a great idea, to people who would say, 
he can't because it would be abandoning his cause. So, you know, I don't have a crystal ball. I think we'll know better uh, <laughs> in a couple of hours right after the debate. Um, but I, I think that, that he will most cert- – I am anticipating that he's not going to be nice out against uh, Vice President Biden, um, but he may very well be knives out against the mess the administration has made uh, of this situation, of them being, you know, so inconsistent and uh, and seemingly uh, don't have their stuff together, particularly regarding the testing. And, and I think his messaging about uh, universal health care, right, uh, is an important message right now when people are um, – we're going to have, you know, potentially more people in the hospital than our hospitals can accommodate. So it will be interesting to see, that's for sure. I'm going to listen to Tim for a little while. Uh, Tim, ask away. Oh, yeah. Uh, you know, Wendy, uh, they were talking on television today about the upward curve, especially comparing it to, say, what's going on in Italy and that ours seems to be possibly taking that trajectory in this country. And basically, the health experts are saying, really, this thing is getting started here, which realistically means we could be fighting this battle with this virus six months from now. Well, obviously, as a member of the DNC, you're looking at the calendar. Uh, how will this presidential election, with, along with all other elections in the country, be able to proceed in case of a long-term crisis? Have, have the two parties started talking about that yet uh, amongst its leadership, or have you heard anything, or, or do you have any ideas of, of how it could even go forward like this? <laughs> Well, I haven't I haven't th- heard anything in that regard, um, Tim. I, I know that uh, I know that there are a lot of uh, smart and thoughtful people in- engaged um, in speculation, right? I think it is a little. Uh, it's never too early to to be making plans, um, but I think it is too early to to figure it all out, right? Um, mm-hmm. Because we just we just don't know. I mean, the good news is that um, that China seemed to have gone through, uh, although their measures were, were different than the measures we, we've taken so far, but it, it seems that their cycle is uh, looking at about 50 days from something I just, I read earlier this weekend. And um, so, so I, don't, I don't know that we'll be battling this for six months, but, but then again, you know, it could come back. So, uh, none of this is none of this is clear. Uh, I, I feel like this is, you know, the closest to um, to this situation that our country has been through was uh, what in, after um, World War One, right? With this, what so-called Spanish mm-hmm. flu um, came mm-hmm. through and, and decimated so many families. Mm-hmm. Um, think it would be a good idea then for the leadership of the two parties to start making contingency plans, or, or, or is a wait-and-see wait approach better? Well, I mean, I, mean, I, think, um, I, think, I think certainly both parties need to be uh, sorting out what options they have available uh, vis-a-vis their conventions, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, I think the, mm-hmm. the Republicans have less to be worried about, right? Because like, 
you know, there's really was just a party, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, right. just, uh, you know, a, a Trump, 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 and more Trump. Uh, the only thing that was uh, a little bit, you know, up in the air is if he uh, picks a different vice president. So, um, you know, that's it's a little easier decision for them to make. Um, our convention still, uh, although I don't anticipate it uh, from looking at the numbers and the trajectory of the polling, I, I don't look for it to be uh, what we were thinking at one point might be a brokered convention. Um, so, you know, figuring out, um, you know, what the structure is, if you just do it down to two days instead of four days or, uh, or you, you do something fabulously virtual, right? Like, I don't, I don't know, but they need to be figuring out what those options are, are, and they need to be figuring out, you know, what, um, what policies or rules or procedures need to be. Uh, modified and in the convention, the the convention meaning the people right who are convening, uh, that group of people is the, actually the most powerful within the Democratic Party structure, right? So so they can you know start out the gathering by changing the rules, right? So um, um, anyway, so I, I that I think they need to be working on contingency plans for all of that. I don't think they need mm-hmm. to be you know, too far down the road saying we're going to do X, right? But I think the the smart people need to be have plans are for what, you know, a menu of options would be. Um, and as we get closer to it, figure that out, right? Like, so in Georgia, you know, our delegate selection process was supposed to begin, you know, April 11th, and then it had steps all the way into May um, to before our, it was nearly the end of May before our, uh, delegation was going to be finalized. So now we're going to have to change and somehow condense that timeline because that timeline can't begin until after the May 19th primary now. So are we going to be picking delegates uh, two weeks before the convention and then people having to figure all that out? Uh, I think it'll change the dynamic of the delegate selection. And, you know, that's concerning, but, you know, we've got to do what we've got to do and got to work with the uh, what we're handed and we'll, we'll make it work. Okay. <laughs> uh, I, I'm, I'm not sure I, I have the positive attitude you have about it, but uh, I, I, you know, you're, you're right about one thing. We, we, we have to do what, what, you know, what, what circumstances dictate that we do have to do. So, um, David, let me let me throw it back to you to see if you have anything else to add here. Yeah, well, I just want to get more about the um, nuts and bolts of the actual political process. We had all of these candidates running, I and mean, the last time we talked to you, it was probably twenty something candidates. I mean, this was back when uh, you know John Hickenlooper was still in the race. We narrowed that field down very rapidly, in some ways too rapidly, I think, when we had people dropping out before votes were cast. Now, once some votes have been cast, that's the time folks generally don't run anymore uh, when they don't get as many. Um, but what did you think of the process where it, it went down from such a large field, the two candidates, uh, you know, almost – I've never seen a field this big uh, move that rapidly down to just two. 
Well, um, you know, how much time do we have? Because uh, I have a lot I could talk about about well, Iowa. Talk away. And, That's why I invited you. Yeah, talk away. <laughs> we got a whole hour. <laughs> I, I have uh, since uh, 2007, uh, having been there for a couple months, uh, y'all might recall that I worked for Governor Richardson's presidential campaign, and I spent uh, two of the, uh, let's say, most challenging months of my life in Iowa. Uh, working on his campaign, uh, and it made me not a fan of Iowa caucuses um, from being on the ground there. Um, and uh, obviously, the uh, what's a nice word for it? The mess, uh, <laughs> the complicated mess that was uh, the Iowa caucuses this year um, was uh, gave my mission to uh, make the Iowa caucuses not be first. Uh, gave more fuel to that and. Uh, and I think I'm going to have a lot more people um, once we get through this cycle and start looking at the next cycle, a lot more people may be liking my idea that I've had for a while of taking those first four states. Um, right now I'm happy to just kick Iowa out of that bunch, but if, uh, but if, you know, cooler heads prevail, maybe we keep Iowa in there. But in my mind, have those first four states all on the same day or all in the same week. So they don't have the outsized, uh, they have you still have the capacity for the retail politics together instead of as discrete markers. I think then you have a, a, a fairly nice representation of the country if you look at all four of them together, um, all four of those first four states, Iowa, New Hampshire, South Carolina, and Nevada, or Nevada, I never know the right way to pronounce that. Um, but um, I, I think that's that's one idea. Uh, I obviously being a Georgian, uh, love the idea of, uh, the diversity we have here in Georgia and adding that earlier to the mix. Um, but I don't, I don't necessarily see that there's going to be a big groundswell for that. And, um, and as a party, we don't control when Georgia has their election. That's up to whoever's, you know, secretary of state, um, in, uh, 23. Right. Uh, so, um, Anyway, it'll be interesting uh, to see how that moves forward, but I was um, disappointed. You know, the first primary um, isn't Iowa or New Hampshire. I know Iowa's not a primary, it's a caucus, but uh, the first primary is the green primary, right, the the fundraising primary. And uh, and you saw that we lost a lot of candidates um, by that winnowing, right? They didn't weren't able to raise enough money to realize they um, would have the resources to compete into those first states. And, um, and so it's in, in some ways, it's some people, uh, some candidates who were favorites of, of a lot of friends of mine. Right. Uh, and it's disappointing. I had friends who were working for them. Um, but you also, in some ways you got to give them credit for stepping out when they didn't see uh, a path to the nomination. Right. Other people, uh, didn't have a clear path to the nomination, but they stayed in anyway. Right. And, and everybody has to, you know, take their own cues about when to get out. Um, but it's, uh, it's, you can't say this hasn't been an interesting cycle because it certainly has. And, uh, yeah. and most importantly, you know, you talked about we had 20 something candidates and I'll, I will tell you with a great deal of certainty, um, every single one of them, even the ones that we consider kind of fringy, uh, I think has, has more competence and more capability and more leadership skills than the current occupant of the white house. So, uh, <laughs> That's um, anyway. There you go. Yeah, that's a low bar. I'll throw in this question <laughs> here. 
Go ahead. Uh, a, a question to go with that. Uh, uh, David, you mentioned how unprecedented all of this was, and, and uh, you know, the winnowing of the field just so quickly and, and all. Wasn't the horse race itself overshadowed by who can beat Donald Trump? Isn't that the message that primary voters, especially beginning in South Carolina, started to send? Yeah, I think electability was huge because the stakes were so high because – you know, the Republicans t- four years ago chose Donald Trump. You know, the old saying is, you know, Democrats fall in love, Republicans fall in line. I think this time Democrats, a lot of them said, we better be disciplined and find somebody that can beat Donald Trump. It's kind of like if you said – if somebody was promising you a $5,000 raise and the other guy was promising to cut your pay by 2000 the guy coming in saying, hey, I'll raise your salary by three, but he can actually get it done, it sounded pretty good at that point. Um, and mm-hmm. that's kind of, I think, where Joe Biden f- falls. He's not promising everything Bernie Sanders might be for some people, but he's more likely to get it done. Um, and he's certainly not the, you know, the risky uh, scheme we've seen in, you know, Donald Trump. Yeah. Um, well, Wendy, Wendy, do you think that's why Joe Biden's probably going to go on and win the nomination? Is that the voters have just decided to identify him as the person? most likely to be able to 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 beat Donald Trump in November? Um, I, I think that's certainly a, a large part of it. Um, but but I think that it would be um, we would be remiss if we didn't recognize that, um, you know, our, our neighbors in the African-American community, um, it, it's it's I don't think it was just that that. So many of them looked at Joe Biden and and saw the electability factor. I think so many of them looked at Joe Biden and feel like they know Joe Biden. They trust Mm -hmm. Joe Biden. They Mm -hmm. have confidence in Joe Biden. And and I don't think as as much as uh, Senator Sanders has, uh, you know, an amazing capacity to fundraise, an amazing number of uh, uh, grassroots supporters um, in Mm -hmm. his campaign Four years ago and in the time since and during this campaign, he has still been unable to convince uh, a significant number of um, African-American voters um, that that he's the one they should support for president. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Well, um, Wendy, we can continue to talk about this presidential race, but there's other, um, you know, races on the ballot, and actually two of them for the U.S. Senate office uh, from Georgia. And let's talk first about the one that we didn't expect. Um, Johnny Isaacson still had years on his term, but his health became an issue he had to deal with, and so he stepped down. And uh, Brian Kemp made a um, – uh, maybe not the obvious choice by going with some sitting congressman or something. He picked a businesswoman who also, I guess, co-owned the uh, NBA Dream or the uh, Atlanta Dream, the WBA franchise, Kelly Loeffler. Um, what were your thoughts just on the initial pick of her? Well, I mean, it it, it seemed clear that uh, Governor Kemp was trying to find a way to win back uh, suburban women. Uh, with that pick, uh, I don't I don't know if he's been 
successful. Um, but and he also uh, sort of picked a fight with uh, someone who is extremely uh, influential, particularly in the Republican primary uh, field, right? In 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 President Trump. President Trump, you know, all but said, "You need to pick my buddy Doug Collins." And um, and so it's it's led for some interesting because um, Congressman Collins has decided to uh, to you know to seek the seat. And uh, David, why don't you tell us? It's a little bit unusual in other regards too. Why don't you talk a little bit about the the shape of the race in yes, terms of uh, the, mm. when the election calendar is? Yeah, we've had a discussion of uh, you know is it a jungle election? Is it a jungle primary? Um, politics one, which I don't know if they have the exact term. They're calling it a jungle primary, but actually, since I, my understanding is, since um, the candidate that gets if if a candidate got fifty percent of the vote in the first round, they would win. It's technically a jungle election. There are roughly twenty candidates running for this um, uh, seat. I, I could if I spread them all out, I'd you know take up the rest of the time. But you have Kay Loeffler. And Doug Collins, which are kind of the, the main two Republicans, you have Matt Lieberman, Raphael Warnock, Ed Tarver, all on the Democratic side. And then you have some libertarians, some independent candidates. Um, so it's going to be interesting. I really doubt one candidate gets 50 percent. My guess is there's going to be one Democrat and one Republican, probably in the Republican, maybe first and the Democrat second, but both are going to be under the 50% threshold. Um, I have my own predictions about that, but Wendy, I'd like to hear who you think may be, or how it may flesh out on that first election day. Well, um, well, I think you're right that it would be with a field that large and as much uh, money and resources and energy that are going to be in Georgia in November, it would be highly unlikely for one of those uh you know, 10 or 12 candidates, I forget you said how many, uh, ended up qualifying, uh, for them to get 50% plus one vote. Um, you know, I'm, I share your hopefulness that it will be, uh, one Republican and one Democrat who move on to that runoff in January. And I guess in, in terms of terminology, I just call it a special election, right. Uh, and, and not worry about the jungle part. Um, although, it's going to feel like a jungle in November with everything going on, that Senate seat, the regular Senate seat, um, the, the presidential race, plus um, I think uh, I think every one of the congressional uh, seats in Georgia has a contest, right? Normally all, all 14 of them don't have a competition. Um, we are anticipating, you know, trying real hard on the Democratic side to hang on to the, the seat we flipped uh, two years ago with Lucy McBath. And we came within less of something like 700 votes of uh, flipping another Metro Atlanta seat. So we're hoping to finish that job this time. And uh, now some of the other seats, although contested, will not be that closely contested um, if you're thinking that it's ordinary times. But if we know anything uh, this week in Georgia, uh, these are no ordinary times. So, um, you know, the recruiting class for the state legislature was as good as we've seen in a, in a couple of decades uh, in terms of finding uh, candidates to run in so many seats. Uh, so we're going to have a lot of competitive elections. And, and I'm telling you, anybody who tells you they know exactly how this is going to turn out is lying 
because uh, it's everything is up in the air and even more uncertain than we all felt um, the day after the election in 2016. Yeah, but see, the thing is, I, I love to get people on this show and put them on the spot. Y'all know what I mean? Um, so I, I, I've got to throw the question out there. We 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 have Kelly Loeffler and 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 we have Congressman Collins, two very different sorts of people. Uh, obviously, one supported by the governor. Uh, obviously, one supported by the president. Obviously, one republic uh, supported by the Republican senatorial committee. Obviously, one supported by the brunt of. Uh, shall we say, very conservative congressman. And we know the makeup of the Republican vote in this state. So my question is, we figure one of those two is going to make the runoff. Which one? Uh, I, You know, I think you can – I think it could be – I mean, it's a crapshoot, right? Like you just roll the dice. Um, I mean, there's reason to believe that, you know – I mean, there are strengths to both of their candidacy. I think the Republicans are overestimating the strength of either of those candidates in terms of neither of them have significant name recognition, right? Mm-hmm. Neither of them have uh, an extended statewide network. Neither of them have, frankly, anything I've seen that makes them relatable to regular voters. Um, so the question will be, you know, do they um, fuss and fight and knock each other down so much um, that it just turns everybody off? In addition to don't, you know, don't forget the the layer above this is the, you know, Trump versus whoever our nominee is, and you know that's mm-hmm. going to be a knockdown drag out. So you know, does mm-hmm. you know the heck with how. You know who wants to touch a screen somebody else touched a minute ago? Right? <laughs> is is everybody just going to turn off their t- TV and and switch off and say this whole thing is a mess and and I don't want to participate at all? Or do they say the whole thing's a mess and everybody in Washington is responsible? Well, maybe that helps our side because you know our candidates aren't running from Washington; they're running from Georgia. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, who knows? Uh, I mean, again, it's, I just think there's so much. That's uncertain. I think, um, and the fact that it's a general election electorate, right, rather than the primary electorate, uh, makes the whole thing even more complicated, right? Uh, you know, considering considering the fact that one of them is supported by Donald Trump, I, I'm going to say all other things being equal, that's going to be the clincher because. Of the following reason We just saw what Donald Trump did With regards to that runoff Over there in Alabama The man just can't stay out of it I don't believe I believe before the election He's going to give a word He may not give an endorsement But he's going to give the next thing to it To Collins And I believe that's going to be enough To get him past her And into that runoff What do you say David? I think it's not even going to be as close as you're thinking. I think all uh-huh. the reasons that Brian Kemp picked Kelly Loeffler, and I'll be honest, he picked her for a lot of good reasons. 
Um, she does appear to be that kind of voter in the suburbs that Republicans are losing. And she looks like she's, you know, and she, verbose. she's educated. She's a businesswoman in technology. She owns a sports team that's in a pretty progressive league. And every one of those reasons is going to do her in in a Republican primary environment. And I know this is not a primary with just Republican voters, but it is going to be a de facto that way. Democratic voters are going to go in and choose between Raphael Warnock and Ed Tarver and Matt Lieberman. And Republicans are mm-hmm. going to, by and large, choose between those two. And they're right. going to choose a more conservative one. And I'm seeing so much messaging. We'll talk about our own congressional race soon. But I'm seeing so much messaging that um, those kind of like anti-establishment, um, anti-intellectual candidates do so well. The people that thumb their nose at authority, that's who the Republican primary electorate likes. And that's not who Kelly Loeffler is. Probably better than worse um, as far as just being a general senator. Um, Wendy, any thoughts on that? Um, well, I mean, I, I, I think there's a, a lot of wisdom in in what you're saying. Um, but again, I, it, I, I have, I am not. I mean, I just think I, it's all so unpredictable, right? We, we, I would love to think that everybody by November will be like, we want less chaos and Trump's middle name is chaos. And just, and all the Republicans have been right there, you know, on his bandwagon and let's get rid of all of them. That's, that's what I'd like to think. Mm. Yeah. And so it'll be an interesting race to see. Uh, talking about the democratic side, we keep naming names. Um, it seems like Raphael Warnock may have more establishment support. And um, but then there was a report that came out in the AJC that got some coverage, and now it's uh, probably not going to get a lot of coverage because people have way bigger fish to fry. Tim, how do you think that's going to impact the primary race? Hmm. Oh, that's a good question too. Um, I, I I don't I don't I don't know if I. If I have a definitive answer for you there, David, uh, maybe Wendy is right this year. Maybe maybe voters are going to be in a repudiation mood when they walk in. They choose the most likely person who who is who is who is the Exact opposite of that. Maybe that's what's going on with Joe Biden. He is the exact opposite of Donald Trump. He is the return to normal. Maybe voters are going to be looking for that this year, not only nationally, but right here in Georgia. Does that help? (laughs) Well, I know what you're saying, and I think in uh, how – about thirteen, year, nearly thirteen years of doing this show, I, I want my I stump Tim T-shirt because um, I don't think I've ever asked a question that you didn't have a definitive answer to. So um, I don't know if I, I take pride in that or, or what. It's just too complicated a question. But let's uh, let's let's kind of flip over to that other Senate race, that one we were expecting. Uh, David Perdue was running for re-election. He had kind of hugged up to Donald Trump pretty squarely. 
And he has, I guess, looking at politics, one, he has no um, Republican opposition in the primary, but he does have Democratic opposition. He has uh, Columbus Mayor Teresa Tomlinson, John Ossoff, who ran for Congress, Sarah Riggs Amico, and a few others. Um, Wendy's, this is the seat we were expecting. Um, what's your thoughts on how this race has shaped up thus far? Um, so, you know, I think we are yet to get a good sense of what our primary is going to look like, right? Um, theoretically, we'll be conducted May 19th, right? <laughs> um, it, it feels like we have um, three candidates who will be um, well-financed, um, and it seems like the national groups are – uh, at this point, staying out, right, sort of letting us sort it out here rather than coming in and picking in the primary, as far as I can tell at this point. Um, and then the question will be, um, I feel very confident that even though the race, um, you know, will will be, you'll, you'll have people taking some knocks at each other, uh, I don't see the dynamic being that it'll be a cutthroat, you know, slash each other up primary. So I think uh, we'll be well positioned with that nominee uh, to be running as, you know, taking Georgia, Georgia common sense up to Washington. And, and I think if they can uh, maintain their campaign focus on the state of Georgia uh, rather than just being subsumed into the presidential race, uh, again, I'm very confident of our chances. Um, it'll be fascinating. We have not in the past number of years seen a competitive presidential election in Georgia in terms of uh, campaigns fully funding and fully, you know, having full field staff in Georgia. So I think it'll be fascinating to see. I want people to think, excuse me for a minute, Donald Trump got something like 50.1% of the vote in 16 here in this supposed bright red state uh, without the national party, uh, frankly, spending more than $10 here. So you will have money from every outside interest group on the left, the right, and the middle, and every, you know, shade in between uh, putting money in here on these two Senate seats in the presidential race. Um, you will have field staff uh, where we've never even, you know, the, national, the statewide campaigns didn't even know we had 159 counties. They're all going to know we have 159 counties this time. So I think it will be fascinating to see. I think you, uh, the three of us have always known that there are really more Democrats in this state than the Republicans. We just haven't done a good job turning them out. So um, if, if we're turning them out instead of uh, the national politics turning everybody off, uh, we could be successful. Yeah, well, you mentioned earlier the green primary when we we're talking about the presidential primary yep. race. How much of do you think the green primary is going to affect that U.S. Senate race? Because in my mind, when it comes to governmental leadership, Teresa Tomlinson started off with a big lead. But then when we look at the fundraising numbers we've seen thus far, um, she's not done as well in fundraising, being honest, and John Ossoff has done really well in fundraising. Why do you think that is, given she's had, you know, two full terms as mayor in Columbus now? Um, well, well, first of all, she's she's done well with her fundraising. She has not raised more uh, than her opponents uh, for a couple of reasons. Uh, John Ossoff, 
as folks may recall, had that very unusual special election just after Trump was elected where all kinds of national interest groups uh, came in and got involved, and it was more money than we had ever seen spent on a congressional race in the history of the planet, right? And uh, and so he still had that entire, you know, database uh, to work from and to raise money from people from outside the state who don't know anything about the dynamics of the state. Uh, they don't know where he does or doesn't live in the state, and they've certainly never heard of Columbus, Georgia, uh, nor care who's been mayor there, right? And then you have Sarah Riggs Amico, who um, has stayed competitive in the Green primary, um, primarily because of her um, personal investment in the campaign, as well as she had a, a very broad statewide list um, from from having been our nominee for lieutenant governor two years ago. Well, I mean, and I know what you're saying about, you know, people think Atlanta, that that's Georgia, but that really doesn't show that you know much about the state. And they should have learned that because when you think of Indiana, Indiana you think of Indianapolis, not South Bend, Indiana. So um, be it a small city mayor or, or medium-sized city mayor, whatever it may be, uh, after seeing what Pete Buttigieg did on the national uh, scene, uh, that shouldn't be an inhibitor, you wouldn't think, to uh, Teresa Tomlinson's bid for um, U.S. Senate. Yeah, I mean, I, I think, again, I, I think that she has a lot of really strong uh, credentials that um, the good news is I think all three of them will have uh, significant resources to be able to be um, competitive statewide, certainly in the primary. And then I think everybody will uh, pull together, and I think our nominee will will be very well resourced. Again, I always anticipate the Republicans outspending us, um, but it, but it's a matter of degrees, right? I, I think um, I think we'll be well served, and um, and then our nominee will leave the primary in uh, not being too beaten up. And uh, hopefully with a great case to take to the people. Yes, Wendy. Well, Tim, any more questions on the Senate race before we leave? Yeah, 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 I do. You know, we got an unprecedented situation, obviously, in this state with two Senate seats up and control of the U.S. Senate may be in question and a presidential race, all of that going on at once, all of it on the same night. If you're ranking the states around the country in terms of states that everyone is going to watch, would Georgia not be right at or near the top of the list on election night? I mean, I don't, I don't know how any state is more in the balance, right? I mean, uh-huh. I mean, we've always known, excuse me, that Florida was important, but I mean, I think, um, I think, I think the fact that excuse me, there are a lot of national people who won't believe that Georgia is competitive until right up to the end um, uh-huh. will be one dynamic. But but I'll tell you, I mean, what what was it, uh, two weeks ago, maybe three weeks ago now, um, the National Party, you know, added Georgia to their battleground program. Uh, it's 12 states. Right. So, I mean, that's not number one. But um, But I think by the time we get to November – um, particularly because of the addition of those Senate races, uh, more people will be paying attention to Georgia than ever before. And I think, um, again, my worry with that is you're going to have every interest group coming in, right? So you'll have 
all the anti-NRA people, and the question is, targeted will their work be, right? Are they going to go blanket and come in here to Floyd County and say, you know, the Republican nominee wants you to keep your guns and our person wants to take them away. Um, thinking that's a good thing to say up here, right? So it'll be yeah. interesting to see see how all that outside uh, chatter and conversation and push and pull on these specific issues, how that changes the dynamics of the race. Again, I've felt for a very long time in Georgia, if you can have a statewide race be about Georgia, you have a better chance of winning. If that statewide race ends up being about the national partisan divide, we're, we we might end up on the short end of that stick. Okay. Yes. Well, Wendy, you had alluded to two other congressional districts, and those are interesting, and they probably are going to be more competitive than the one we all three live in. But since we're going by, seeing all the the, the vacant lot signs, in some cases yard signs, um, it, it makes me want to talk about the 14th congressional district because I don't know about you, but I didn't see um, Tom Graves retire. That kind of you know came out of nowhere. I think it hit. Um, a lot of folks out of nowhere. We had a David Mark who wrote an article for one of the Washington newspapers about it. And he said it hit him out of nowhere. Um, that race, uh, it wasn't expected. But uh, what do you think about it so far? How many particular Republican candidates have gotten in? Well, gosh, I didn't. I didn't count their final numbers, but I did. But there are. There's nine of them. Nine of Nine them. Um, Nine Republicans. Well, the interesting thing is that they are, I would say, easily three or four of them who will be very well-resourced, um, which means they'll likely have a runoff. And we have already seen, excuse me, venomous, I mean venomous, Attacks and controversy on the Republican side already, primarily based around the fact that uh, two of the candidates were running in other congressional districts and then swapped over to this district when Graves announced his retirement. And there are a lot of people who take a great deal of umbrage with that. And um, and so you have candidates that are more, quote, local candidates uh, who are are working that angle. And, of course, they're all trying to out-Trump each other, um, being as extreme as they possibly can be, which I think will be <clears throat> fascinating to watch as this year develops. Yeah, um, it's funny. One of those candidates, she's had quite a controversy. She's run against the Taco House. Um, I, I personally stand with the Taco <laughs> House every time. Um <laughs> Just for future reference, there's probably some Democratic candidates if they decide to run against the Taco House, I may still decide with the Taco House. Um, but but in all seriousness, she's one of those candidates on her sign. She has stopped socialism. Another one, a uh, Cowan, pro-Trump, uh, pro this, pro that. But uh, and there's another guy that talks about how all the politicians have abandoned everybody. Um, I want to say it's uh, Matt Lothridge. Except Donald Trump. You know, there's all this message, and then there's this other fellow, Kevin Cook, that on his sign, he says, principal conservative. And I'm like, you're toast, buddy, because you're not hugging up close enough to Donald Trump and the extreme Republican agenda. Um, 
Wendy, what do you think of all this messaging of being as far right as you can possibly be is the way to win this primary? Um, well, again, um, if if you had asked me that question four or five months ago, I would have said, that's the way you should do it. That's the way you're going to win, right? <laughs> the person closest to Trump uh, who convinces the most people that he's the most likely. Tim, you still there with me? Yes, sir. I'm here. Wendy has dropped off. Uh, hopefully she'll come on back in. Um, I'll text her that. But until okay. then, I'm just going to get your thoughts uh, on um, this uh, primary race. Yeah, yeah. I, w- I was thinking about another candidate that you haven't mentioned, and that's the former state school superintendent, John Barge. So if there is the... Republican establishment figure, there he is. And you know what? Up here in this very conservative area, I have actually been seeing some of his signs up here, enough of his yard signs, as a matter of fact, that they're rivaling the numbers of uh, both Cowan, who has a lot of signs up here, and Marjorie Green, who has a lot of signs up here. And if a lot of those other candidates are going to split up that strong pro-Trump vote, I wouldn't be surprised at all to see maybe Bart sneak in there and at least, you know, make a runoff or something. What do you think? Well, two things, I think. One, uh, he didn't do very well when he ran for governor against Nathan Deal, although, I mean, if he'd asked most anybody, they would have said that's not going to work um, yeah. in that reelection race. And two, his messaging is, yeah, I'm a good public servant. I know a lot about education. And knowing stuff is not exactly the Republican brand. I don't know how many of y'all watch The Simpsons, but the Republican Party is, you know, Cletus. Um, Spunkler supporting Homer Simpson or Chief Wiggin these days. I mean, that's mm-hmm. the Republican Party that, that how it functions seemingly. Wendy, sorry about whatever happened. Have no idea if it was me, you, or the internet. We'll just blame the internet. Um, but pick back up where you were with um, this 11th, congre- I'm sorry, the 14th congressional district race. Well, I'm I'm not really sure where I got cut off, and I apologize for that. I was just talking and talking and talking. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Wendy, I had Wendy. I was going to tell you I had mentioned John Barch. His name hadn't come up yet, and I was wondering what you would would think about him maybe sneaking into the runoff, being kind of like the Republican establishment candidate in this field. I don't see how John Barge raises enough money to be competitive. And, you know, as sort of a disclaimer, I went to college with John. He's a good uh-huh. guy. Uh, yeah. Frankly, I don't think he's really a Republican, but I guess he wouldn't want me saying that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I, think, I, think he's a, I think he's a good government guy who uh, really cares about our, our children and cares about our community, and he's a smart guy. Um, but – I don't see those as being things that the Republican primary voters uh, really treasure. Mm. That's a thought. Yeah, I always thought if if John Barge had gotten so disgruntled with Nathan Deal um, way back when, uh, he could have switched parties and run 
Um, and he probably would, and then it probably would have. Jason Carter might have forgone running in that uh, race, which is probably not a good year for a Democrat anyway. But he's probably been smarter to change parties as a protest and then stay in that office. And he very well might be in that office today. Um, I don't know how he feels about other issues, but on education itself, he has no problems with the Democratic Party. Um, you know, he's pro public education, um, and that's really not a bad place to be. Uh, for a Democrat, but not necessarily the the you know red meat the Republicans want. Um, so I think he's kind of a little out of step with what his main issue is and how he looks at that issue and the rest of the Republican platform because that's you know all about a lot of divisive social issues and of course tax, cut taxes as low as they can get. You can't really fund schools if you cut taxes to the bone. Well, Wendy, we've got you for a few more minutes, and I want to kind of switch over to. The topic du jour, unfortunately, for the past um, week or two, and unfortunately for the next month or two, uh, the coronavirus. Now, you are an elected official. Um, how do you look at this from an elected official standpoint at the local level, particularly what you see at the highest level of government and kind of seemingly the disconnect? Well, I mean, so many of the really difficult decisions that are going to be made – are being made at the local level, right? I uh, mm-hmm. I happened in uh, in D.C. with my colleagues at the National League of Cities, and uh, for a meeting of Democratic municipal officials, and um, one of my close friends, who's now mayor of Savannah, Van Johnson. I mean, he was tormented with the decision about what to do about their St. Patrick's Day parade, and they have, I think, the the second or the third largest parade in the country for St. Patrick's Day down in Savannah, and it is 30% of their tourism for the year. Ooh. And him, I mean, he was agonizing over that decision, but he had to make the decision to protect the physical uh, element of his constituents and his community over the economics, Right. And it was a very difficult decision to make, but you know that's what leaders do. You got to do you make the tough decisions, and you move forward. And on a much, you know, much less grand scale, I mean, we're having to make those same kind of decisions here in Rome. We're having to decide, you know, how we uh, protect both the citizens of Rome and our workforce, and make sure that police and fire are fully functioning, right? Even while we're protecting our firefighters and police officers, right? Mm. And, you know, the question of elections, you know, it's about public safety as well as, um, you know, our securing our democracy, right? These are very difficult decisions. You know, the county has to, the sheriff has to worry about the jail. And just think about if this virus gets in, to the jail or the prison, you know, how devastating and how quickly it can move through there. Um, And again, we haven't even begun to wrap our brains around uh, the economic costs of this. Uh, We are blessed to have a strong healthcare community here in Rome. But, you know, if we follow the Italian trajectory, which the numbers are eerie, how closely they match, Mm -hmm. um, we're going to be overwhelmed. And if you think about the fact that we clearly as a nation are not testing as many people as we ought to be testing. Uh, I mean, I'm scared if we get to testing protocols 
and the availability of the testing to where the level it ought to be that our numbers are going to, I mean, dwarf Italy, which means all of our hospitals will be overwhelmed. That's frightening. Wendy, uh, you know, so much of Rome's economy now is centered in its downtown area and the great things that have been done there and the great nightlife and all the restaurants and the bars and the and the shops and the the ice cream stores and just on and on and on and on and on it attracts huge crowds day and night. And I, I guess what I'm trying to ask our city fathers going to have to make some tough decisions regarding you know, what stays open, what doesn't, that sort of thing, as some other communities already have started doing. Well, I'm, I I don't know that that it's going to progress to the point where those are decisions where the city is going to have to make to tell, um, you know, private companies to not stay open. Um, but uh-huh. you are seeing businesses already – um, shutting down because their business is so slow and their uh-huh. concerns about protecting their employees. So, mm-hmm. I mean, I, I think there's there's a lot we're going to have to weather. Uh, I'm hoping that the folks at the national level get their act together to protect the employees. The ones I'm most concerned about in a lot of ways are the the hourly workers and the people who – work at sub-minimum wage, right, the bartenders and the servers, uh, if they mm-hmm. don't have customers in their store, uh, that two thirteen an hour isn't going to put much groceries on the table or pay their rents. So, um, mm-hmm. you know, there's a lot we're going to have to weather here uh, more than just uh, not succumbing to a virus. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think the good news is you'll see people coming together and helping each other. You know, the schools being closed unexpectedly, you know, think about the folks who, you know, don't have, they haven't planned to have child care, plus there isn't enough child care available, so they're going to have to not go to work. So, you know, how do they pay the rent? How do they feed their kids? Um, And you're seeing neighbors stepping up to help each other. Uh, And I think hopefully, um, I think that's what makes America strong is that we do come together as neighbors, and I hope we'll see a lot more of that um, than the foolishness of people buying more toilet paper than they could use in a year, right? <laughs> that kind of thing. I still hadn't figured that one out, but go ahead, David. <laughs> yes. Well, Wendy, we thank you for giving us the whole hour. So good to have you on for extended time, and um, hopefully uh, it won't be too long before we have you on just as a guest with Catherine, and you can be telling us about a great convention in Milwaukee and how uh, this thing didn't last as long as we had feared and, and everything's back to closer to normal. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm with you in having all those positive thoughts and all of the positive thoughts. Yes. Thank you well, so much, Wendy. Thank you. Until next week, this has been Kudzu Vine. Good night, guys. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Will a strong and united America still be a...